The Provoke Media Intersection series, brought to you by Provoke Media and Praytel, with production support from Marketeers. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Intersection. So this is a new video series that Provoke Media is launching in partnership with Praytel. Um, I'm Arthi Shaw. I'm the executive editor for Provoke Media, and I will be hosting this series. So what is the Intersection series? Um, so there's another video, which I'll link to here, um, in which we talk a little bit about the series and why we decided to launch it. Um, but the gist of it is, you know, we want to invite guests to have sort of an open conversation about the ways that creativity, media, and technology sort of intersect with DE&I, which is, of course, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how this sort of trans transforming behaviors and norms, not only in the PR industry, but beyond. Um, we are focused on bringing guests outside of the PR industry because we do want that sort of outside thinking. Um, of course, this is a video series, but we will have a podcast option. So for those of you that are audio only, um, I'll have a link to that as well. Um, so in this inaugural episode, we are thrilled to have a guest whose work spans all three areas of creativity, media, and technology. So I'd like to take a moment to welcome to the show Professor Craig Watkins. Um, Professor Watkins uh, teaches at sort of my alma mater, which is the University of Texas at Austin, Hookham. Um, and he's also the author of two books, uh, Don't Knock the Hustle and the follow-up, which is the follow-up to The Digital Edge. And the books sort of explore how young creatives of color are building a new innovation economy that, that's disrupting sectors like design, media, entertainment, and civic engagement. Um, he's also founding director of the Institute for Media Innovation at UT Austin. Welcome, Craig. Hi, thank you. Glad to be here. And we also have Naria Fraser, and Naria is VP and head of DEI at Praytel. And Naria will be able to bring sort of the, the PR industry perspective to, to the conversation. Welcome, Naria. Thank you. Thank you for having me and excited to be here. Yeah, so, so this is going to be a great conversation, and um, we will also include links to, to Professor Watkins' books in the show notes as well, um, for those of you that want to go, go deeper. But you know, I wanted to start this conversation um, talking about um, different platforms that creatives of color have used to sort of express their own creativity. And one of those, I think, um, Professor Watkins that you mentioned in your book is YouTube and I wanted to talk a little bit about the significance of YouTube and sort of rising um, in sort of spotlighting creatives of color. Yeah, so you, YouTube is, you know, obviously one of, of many platforms that young creative colors have adopted and, and used with, with great ingenuity. Um, I was struck by YouTube because in doing some earlier research on it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's evolved in ways that no one could have predicted or imagined. Um, believe it or not, when the founders of YouTube uh, created the platform, they initially thought it might be like a dating site or a dating service. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, it's become something quite different than that, uh, fortunately, fortunately for the world. But I think for a lot of young creators of color, YouTube is an opportunity to um, do what I like to call sort of prototyping, the future of media, and in some cases, like the future of television. So, you know, oftentimes they might have a story idea based on lived experience or characters or, or just stories that they're familiar with. And there's really no way to kind of get those uh, through the, the kind of guarded gates into the industry. And YouTube has become like this really interesting space for, um, you know, young creators of color uh, just to, uh, you know, create content, 
uh, find a community, build a community, uh, and share that um, you know content in ways that have become quite striking, and specifically, right, in ways that have kind of reimagined what the future of TV might look like. So it's really this idea of using YouTube as well as other platforms almost as kind of like their very own innovation lab, um, where they're able to test ideas, um, you know, project new notions and representations of what storytelling and entertainment might look like, and in some ways, uh, breaking down uh, barriers and opening up new opportunities. In one of the one of the stories that you highlight in your book, right, is is is, is Ray and how she used YouTube to to launch her own career, and I. I, I, I don't know the details of, of this comparison, but I know that I last month there was a lot of comparisons about kind of her journey compared to somebody, um, you know, like 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 the like like Leah Dunham, right? And how differently they had to build their creative careers. And I was wondering if if you you know if you feel like it's a raise example is is much more indicative of you know obviously of someone of color, given that they don't necessarily have. The industry connections and they aren't given sort of a carte blanche like here start you know we trust that you will start a series um you know the way that the way that you know according and again i i don't know the details of leah dunham's situation so i, I don't want to i don't want to just knock her but but i know that there were some comparisons of you know these these two young women and how they were able to get their own shows and how different um their experiences were yeah, and, and I don't know a lot about that as well, but you know, I, I, I was tracking just a little bit the, the reactions to and, and conversations that were taking place on Twitter about uh, Dunham. And specifically, I think the idea that um, you know, she really didn't have much of, of, a, of a project or show in development, maybe pitched literally like, like a napkin you know, concept uh, and got it uh, sort of approved, uh, uh, sort of green-lighted and, uh, and, and, you know, uh, available to HBO. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, I mean, something that Issa Rae said that I thought was really interesting kind of, and sort of as she was coming up uh, through the ranks, is that, you know, and I think this is the case of a lot of young creatives, and particularly young creatives of color. You know, you're, you're hustling, you're on your grind, you're trying to create really um, compelling content, uh, you think you've got a story to tell, something to share with the world, and you're working creatively and, 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 and trying to make that happen. And what you found out right through the grind is that it's not only about, you know, the content that you're creating, um, but as she described it, right, it's, it's also an industry, it's a who you know industry. Um, and I think, you know, the, the sort of separate stories between Leah Dunham and, and Issa Rae, for instance, are just, I think, an illustration of, you know, when, when you don't have access to those corridors of power, when you don't have the connections, you know, what we might call that, that social capital, right? Um, that it, it really does make it incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to break through. Um, and so I think, you know, what young creators of color have done, among other things, in terms of the social media landscape, is they've used that as a way to network, as a way to grow their kind of expertise, to grow their, their connections to other people, both in and, and, and outside of the industry. And I think that's become, you know, a sort of a pivotal aspect of how they've managed to sort of invent what I like to call their own kind of innovation economy. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's, and Aria, you know, you feel free to give your perspective, that's not unlike the PR industry where a lot of the internships, a lot of the entry-level positions are pretty well networked and especially for folks that are fast-tracked onto like creative director positions, um, you know, there, there's, there's a industry, industry connections play a big part of that and also just prior industry experience, right? So if you get your foot in the door first, then you sort of get, you know, you have a trajectory, whereas folks that are just sort of fighting to kind of get their way in and then be taken seriously as a creative, 
Um, I think that's something that the industry struggles with still. I mean, yeah, we all know though, you know, we all know the profile of a creative director in our industry and hopefully that's starting to change, but yeah. Right, right. I mean, there's so many similarities here, right? I mean, the PR industry is is very homogenous. Um, those connections are extremely valuable and they're extremely valuable while you're in college still, right? So who's coming into your college classroom to um, to take resumes and to um, share your information with their colleagues? Um, who can you go, where can you go and tour um, when it comes to PR agencies? What's available in your immediate, um, your city center? Uh, are there agencies there and can you get connected that way? It starts from college. And then once you, um, if you are able to break through and really like get, get in that door, I mean, then you you really sit and and I am speaking from personal experience here, but also shared experiences that I've had with many of my colleagues. Um, you really realize this industry was not made for you. This this agency was not made with you in mind. Um, and while um, they may value um, your perspective being a person of color, a young person of color, um, you very quickly realize that um, it this was not built for you. Um, and what I have witnessed. Um, in my time within the PR industry is um, the importance of building that social capital and the grind that goes into doing that um, from social networks, right? So getting on Twitter, connecting with your uh, other people who you graduated, building those connections, uh, joining an employee resource group and connecting with other employee resource groups within the industry, um, and how all of these um, young creatives and um, young people of color are coming together to hold everyone up and to build a pipeline into this industry in a way that's sustainable has been really amazing to watch. And Sometimes it takes stepping back and really looking at the work that's gone into this for several years and what, and you know, how it's, how it's like really taken shape over time. Um, and, and who's getting that recognition is really, really special to see. Um, but I, I mean, just within the PR industry, what you, what you, what you end up getting is this reflection, maybe through, you know, five years in when you're like, I have worked really hard to be at the same place as my colleagues and I am burnt out and I am tired. So then people leave and they maybe don't stay within the industry. And then now there's a gap in senior leadership. Now the cycle's starting over again. So I, I mean, when I hear, when I hear the comparisons with what goes on in Hollywood and what goes on with others, I, there's a lot that we can be taking and learning from because if we don't break this cycle, it's going to continue to happen um, over and over again. So that's just stuff that I'm very passionate about trying to change. Yeah, and if I could add, you know, I uh, just to echo Nari your, your your point. You mentioned something I think is really critical: uh, pipeline. And you know, one of the things that I think the PR industry, if if, and I'm sure some agencies are already doing this, but if you look at other sectors like tech, you know, um, uh, media, education, even um, sort of being very intentional about how you design ways to sort of expand and diversify that pipeline become really important. So the example you gave about, you know, where are, um, you know, agencies and companies uh, most likely to recruit? Um, and are you recruiting in places right where you increase the chance that you might get introduced uh, to a different uh, kind of pipeline of talent, right? Mm -hmm. you know, people of color, women. Uh, people who bring maybe something very different in terms of perspective, ideas, and ingenuity to your process. 
And so that's become something that's been really interesting. So for instance, you see a lot of tech companies, or at least a few years ago, more and more tech companies started experimenting with the idea of recruiting uh, and visiting and, de and developing relationships with HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities. Yeah, and we're thankfully seeing that more in the PR industry. But, but I'm curious, you know, to, to, to the point that both, you know, Craig, you've made and Nari has made as well about social networks. Can the industry use social networks as a way to find talent? Um, you know, much like it sounds like Hollywood already has. And, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, to hear, because I know, Craig, you had mentioned that, you know, YouTube has, has, has changed some elements, you know, of the platform that have made it sort of harder to find talent. And I'm curious whether, you know, TikTok or Instagram or some of these other platforms are being used increasingly to find creatives of color, ones that may not be connected into the industry, and whether that can translate into the PR industry in terms of using social networks to, to really find the next generation of talent. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And um, I think it's uh, an underexplored um, opportunity uh, for doing precisely what you've just uh, noted. Um, because we know, right, and we've, I mean, you know, I started doing this research, you know, 10, 12 years ago, and in some cases even earlier. And, and what we started seeing then, and it's only become much more pronounced uh, since then, is young people of color have this very strong presence and influence in kind of the social media space. Um, you know, young African-Americans, for example, amongst young people were some of the earliest adopters of Twitter. And so how they have sort of fashioned Twitter, right, as this space for community, for conversation, as we've seen later with like things like Black Lives Matter, you know, civic engagement. But, but, but the point being is that they also see these uh, platforms as ways to um, kind of share their creativity, to sort of build community, to build these ecosystems uh, around their, their various interests. And so I, I think there's absolutely right opportunities for, for PR agencies, for example, to begin to start identifying talent that way. Um, and in some cases, right, uh, young creatives of color are making that work easier, right, for agencies insofar as they're organizing, right, ad hoc, um, you know, underground agencies or ad hoc, uh, you know, design shops and their feature network on social media. And so um, you know, there's just a lot percolating there. And I think there certainly is opportunity to more formally interact with, engage, uh, and, uh, and recruit from that, that reservoir talent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would I would add, you know, you've recently started to see a massive list of talent being circulated, especially within the DEI community, um, that's coming from these more underground or these more unknown organizations who have self-organized, again, like started that social, like started building social capital from the ground up. Um, and now there's, there's, it, it, you would have to look in the opposite direction to say you cannot find creatives of color, that you cannot find people to fit this bill. But something that, that you know, we really focus on, um, especially within the DEI industry, is once we do have that talent, how do we ensure that we have a company or a culture that is supporting them um, and that's built for them? Not just a, cult, a culture that wants to temporarily say, hey, we want to support, we want to amplify voices. I think that that's great, um, and that's a that's a decent starting place. Um, but to have that authenticity that Black Twitter has, to have that authenticity that you know Issa Rae had and the work she was doing um, that started on YouTube, um, it has to come from a place that is real, that's created. 
for people to truly share the stories that they want to share without reservation and with art, without those guardrails that are typically created once you enter the corporate world. So how do we, how do we not only like take what you're saying, like take the idea of like recruiting from social, but how do we create working environments that give that same creative liberty and freedom? I don't know if there's an answer to that, but I definitely think every company should be exploring it right now. So I, that's a, an interesting, a good point. And especially, you know, the sustainability um, of, you know, of, of this commitment. And, but also to your point that, that you made, Naria, about, you know, when you have to work just as hard, or sorry, not just as hard, sorry, you have to work like five times as hard as your white counterparts. If you're a woman, you know, you add gender on top of that. Um, and in an industry like where creativity is what's, what's the asset, that's the value, and, and you're really at risk of burnout, I mean, that seems like it's creating a really unequal playing field, right? If somebody's having to give so much more of their creativity and they're therefore much more at risk of burnout, um, you know, how do you make that more equitable so that, you know, somebody is being recognized equally to, you know, their white peers, their male peers, and they're not at risk for burnout within their organizations, especially because as we know, creativity is a, it's an, it can be all encompassing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Definitely. You have thoughts on like, you know, how do we keep, how do we help this be sustainable for creatives of color because they do have to hustle and work in a way that their white counterparts don't. I'm happy to start and Craig, I'm sure you have thoughts here, but I, I would say it's about the intersection of diversity, bringing people in who are different, but also ensuring that there's equity, we're removing bias from how they are treated within the workplace, how people are promoted, um, and, and, and inclusion, they feel very much a part of. And I think a huge part of this is not, you're not hiring as a token person. You're not hired as a token person um, to fulfill a specific uh, uh, checkbox or, or checklist of, um, of diverse traits. You know, you are hired because you are qualified, but also you are hired into a group into a team that is already diverse, already inclusive, and already has removed some of those barriers. Because what I've seen, especially recently, is not only do we have what historically ha happens when you are um, when you are a minority or from an underrepresented group um, working in a, a corporate environment, now you have the added burden of educating everyone around you about what is going on, while, why something may be considered appropriation, why t the tone may be off. Um, and that adds another layer that is one step closer to burnout, one step closer to losing that person within the corporate structure. So um, there's a lot of work that has to be done to create sustainable workplaces and we're far from it, but the, I do think people are focused on it, which is great right now. Yeah, and I, and I think you're you're exactly right. And you know, one of the the, the challenges that you know, if it's if it's women in the workplace or people of color in the workplace, is is this issue of of, of quote unquote culture fit, mm. and um, and that oftentimes can become a, a real issue because we know, I mean, I mean, culture fit in, in some ways, right, is is sort of code for um, you know fitting into you know, a, a homogeneous uh, kind of cultural sensibility, which is oftentimes white and male directed or driven. 
Um, and, and through that, right, activities, whether it's the informal things that people do at work, um, you know, outside of work, if it's sharing a drink together, sharing a meal together, hanging out with each other, that oftentimes those become subtle processes and subtle ways in which people develop the kinds of relationships, get the kind of mentoring and coaching that they need in order to, to succeed and move up the ranks. Uh, and we know that oftentimes, um, you know, for women, you know, culture fit can, can, can be a, a real problem and certainly for, for people of color as well. You know, so to, to Naria's point, it's really about not only, you know, checking that box, but thinking very intentional about how you create an organizational culture in which everyone feels included, everyone feels respected, uh, and that there aren't these sort of subtle, more informal, nuanced ways in which people get excluded uh, and therefore miss out on opportunities to grow uh, and to expand uh, and, and, and move up. That word culture fit was so pervasive in the PR industry for a very, very long time. And I would have conversations with folks in the industry and, and around hiring and, and it always came back to this idea of a culture fit. And I would say it's been relatively recently that I finally started to hear that term sort of fall out of favor a little bit, but I, but I mean, I still, it, it, it's not obsolete. <laughs> I mean, I still hear it, but it was really, really pervasive. I would say um, definitely about five years ago. Um, and then I think gradually over the last few years, I'm hearing it less and less as people are becoming more aware of like what it's code for. Um, but even just last week, I was on a call with somebody and she was saying that she still encountered performance review situations where, you know, the, the boss and the guy will go and have their performance review on the golf course. And then the woman is brought in for a very formal, you know, sit, you know, review. And, and so, you know, those little inequities, right, that, that it still persist um, and lead to, lead to burnout, um, lead to people feeling like they don't belong or that, like you said, an organization doesn't, doesn't, wasn't built for you. Um, you know, I, I do, I, I wanted to also talk about, um, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, and Craig, one of the things that you talk about in your book is, is Black Lives Matter in 2016 and how that movement unfolded. And although the movement is even older than that, it started, it was like 2013, I think. Um, but, it, it, we, you know, we had this moment that it came to light again in 2016 and it had a very different public perception than it did in 2020. And I'm just curious to get your perspective on what changed. Was it the style of the movement or was it the public's receptiveness to it? I think, um, you know, I think, the, the, the combination of the, the, the 20 events of, of a pandemic uh, and then, you know, these most recent, um, you know, um, situations where you see, um, you know, black people unarmed, you know, being um, essentially murdered by, 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 by law enforcement, um, that it has, it's, it's, it's catalyzed a, a nation uh, in ways that it just never did in 20, 13, 2014, or 2016, when I was, the movement that I was, that the, the version of Black Lives Matter that I was captain in my most recent book. And so I would say just the, the scale of who's now investing in emotionally, uh, politically, locally, civically, in some ways financially, um, that is, that is it's widened significantly. Uh, and I think given the movement um, a much greater uh, uh, sense of urgency and currency that it never had before. Um, I think it was easy to sort of dismiss Black Lives Matter as, as something that, that primarily African-Americans were invested in um, and that it wasn't necessarily something uh, that resonated uh, beyond the African-American community. 
uh, and obviously right with the with the murder of George Floyd specifically, um, I think a lot of people have become quote unquote woke, uh, and as a result of that, um, you know, I think many people have noticed right that the that the that the that the presence that the color of people out in the streets protesting and demanding change uh, has widened significantly since 2014 2016, and you now have right like high profile corporations um, you know now releasing uh, statements in support of Black Lives Matter, and that's something that would have never happened just a year, two, three years ago. Nari, I'd love to get your perspective on, on, on your client response, because again, one thing that was different this year is the number of brands that were saying Black Lives Matter and not just giving vague statements about standing up to hate, but actually saying Black Lives Matter. Did you notice that shift as well, with, especially with the brands that you work with? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, they just celebrated their seven year anniversary. Um, and that means seven years have, have gone by where, where this has been, um, I mean, unaddressed in the workplace and within the brands that we work with and the, and, and the corporations. Um, so this was a major movement and a major moment in time. Um, we uh, definitely experienced a surge in brands um, reaching out needing guidance on how to have this conversation um, externally. And it is a extreme responsibility to, to, to manage that. And, and I, I feel really great to work at an organization, um, Praytel, um, that, that really opened that line of communication and was there for our clients to counsel them. Um, and it was, a, it, it, it was bittersweet, right? You had seven years once again where where this had gone unaddressed, and you know sometimes you want to scream, you know, listen to black people, listen when there is an issue, listen to when people are are hurting because that's seven years of trauma that happened that was not addressed internally at many places and definitely wasn't brought um, brought to the public's attention um, or, or there was not a public statement from a corporation. So uh, I, I say it's bittersweet because this definitely opened up that door and the ability and, and the responsibility to counsel clients in an ethical way um, of their obligations to their employees alongside the obligations to the communities that they serve, the communities that they work within, um, the, the audiences that they hope to engage is tremendous right now. And they, they, ha they should be making a statement about what is right, um, but that can't be met without action, without an understanding of the historical context of, of, of Black Lives Matter and the movement. So it's, it's complicated. Yes, we were engaged and we were there. We're there for our, for our clients um, along this ride, but it was um, it, it was trem a tremendous response. Yeah, and I would say, you know, already the, the, the other thing that um, I think is, is remarkably distinct between earlier iterations of Black Lives Matter and, and how we see it unfolding today is that it's it's much more um, expansive uh, in terms of of the institutional um, sort of targets, if you will. So whereas in in the early days, it, it primarily, at least from the public's perception, focused almost, if not exclusively, on you know, policing and, and law enforcement. Um, now we're beginning to sort of broaden that to a, a wider recognition of, of the term that we've all become frequent with over the last few months, so systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And that is something, right, that is, is in, in many ways um, you know, kind of reflected throughout uh, institutional life. Uh, and, and again, the fact that this happened right alongside of a pandemic 
right alongside of a pandemic that we've seen have disparate outcomes and impacts, right, on communities of color, uh, poor people. Uh, and so it just becomes just another powerful illustration of how this notion of systemic racism leads to, um, you know, disparate outcomes in terms of health, in terms of livelihood, literally in terms of life. Uh, and so um, I think, um, you know, it, it, it sort of poises uh, or puts Black Lives Matters in a position to have a far bigger impact uh, than anyone likely could have imagined coming into the year 2020. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it definitely was sort of this perfect storm of different different things sort of coming together. Um, you know, I, but you know, on that note, I want to talk a little bit about the role that you know the, the the digital world played in this, and this idea that you know we, we have this derogatory term right called slacktivism. Um, and and what, in, in reading um, the book, you know, I, I, I was kind of trying to compare that to this idea of connected activism. So I was wondering if you could sort of explain sort of, are those two things differently or is slacktivism simply just misunderstood and is it actually far more effective than, than we give it credit for? So yeah, so I guess the, the question would be is, you know, what is slacktivism versus connected activism and what role has that played, especially in the Black Lives Movement of 2020? Yeah, you know, my, my, you know, my, my, my research suggests, right, that, you know, as we have, sort of, I think, improperly labeled, you know, young people as uh, inactive when it comes to civic and political engagement, disinterested when it comes to civic and political engagement, uh, more likely to, you know, you know, like something on Facebook or share something on Twitter, and that really be the extent of their civic or political engagement. Um, and so some have characterized that, right, as, as, as slacktivism, as, as clicktivism, uh, but it's this notion, right, that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a passive form of participating in civic life. Um, and in fact, right, the, the evidence around us suggests something very different. And we've seen this empirically in terms of some of the research that we've done uh, here at the University of Texas uh, and with, with the institute that I'm helping to create. Um, and that is, you know, we, we, we actually see a, a really interesting relationship between those who are, you know, active civically or politically online and, and those who are active civically and politically offline. So I think that the, the whole notion of slacktivism suggests that young people are only active online, that they're only doing things digitally, sharing things, liking things, posting things, but they're not out in the streets. They're not um, mobilizing. They're not organizing. They're not um, you know, trying to um, advocate for change. Uh, and in fact, our, our research suggests, right, that those who are likely to be out advocating for change, mobilizing, organizing, signing petitions, making their voices heard, are also likely to be those who are active online as well. So there's no distinction between being active online and offline. They tend to be sort of mutually supporting of each other. Uh, and so we, we've just seen no real credible or extensive um, evidence uh, that, that young people um, you know, engage only in these more passive forms of civic engagement. And Black Lives Matter, right, is, I think is just a, is a, is a most recent example of that uh, in terms of how um, social media digital media, these platforms have been used uh, in really complex ways to broadcast and, and, and tell stories about the movement and their activism, uh, to organize and mobilize people, both locally and, and, and nationally and even globally, but in some ways, right, to, to help propel forward a narrative that in some ways has sort of altered the broader scope of public discourse around race, around systemic racism, and around social injustice. Uh, and those have all been made possible as a result of the ways in which they have leveraged the technology to have civic impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, even even March for Our Lives, right? I mean, how mm -hmm. effective has that been in, in sort of the gun conversation, right? And that was that was Gen Z that, that really yeah. organized that. Um, 
you know, I, the, going back to the creatives question and, you know, just being mindful of time because this is such a, a packed conversation. I, I don't want to overload people. So we probably want to um, wrap, wrap it up soon. But, but I do want to go back to this idea of um, something that Craig, you mentioned sort of this, there was the, a color creative, which is sort of this incubator for ideas in particular for, for people of color. And I wondered if there was a way that, that that could be translated to the corporate world, you know, perhaps to the PR agency world. Like, is there something that like that that can be replicated um, to help foster creatives of color, you know, outside of, outside of Hollywood even? Yeah, I do, and, and I'm sure Narya has some, some, some thoughts on this as well, but, um, you know, but the, the, the color creative, right, is something that is, this array created as she was beginning to um, derive more and more uh, social capital, more and more pop culture capital, more and more influence. Um, and what she recognized, right, was, was the need to, to try to create something, right, an ecosystem, you know, an infrastructure that supported the ability of other young creatives of color to, to find their opportunity as well. And that it wasn't enough just for her to be in the room, that you needed others in the room and you needed to sort of, to that to the point that Nari mentioned earlier, you know, how, do, how do we build and expand the pipeline? And really what that is about is, is, is trying to, in her case, she was trying to create an ecosystem for, for writers um, uh, and using digital as a way to do that, to sort of build community, to build connection, uh, for people to be able to share ideas, uh, to learn from others who've gone through the experience, to see models of success, models of, of, of failure, uh, because we oftentimes learn from failure. But the idea, right, is that until you begin to start being very uh, intentional about organizing opportunities for people to grow, to build their, their, their connections, their social capital, uh, to exercise their craft and to learn how to better perform their craft, and to be intentional about creating you know, very deliberate ways to do that and to facilitate that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, kind of ineffective just to say you want that to happen without trying to implement real world strategies that allow that to happen. And so I do think, right, this idea of creating pathways and systems uh, and infrastructures that facilitate uh, talent that comes primarily from young people of color would be a very interesting idea, concept, and model for agencies to consider. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, on, honestly, I don't have much to add here. I, I definitely think it's it, it's worth exploring. Um, and I would also add there's there are already these incubators. Like I, I'm thinking specifically of um, Creative Collective in, New, in NYC. Um, there are already these networks and these incubators that are on, that are that are running. How can the how can the corporate world get engaged? I mean, I I think that there's a learning period, right? Understanding how they're they're working, how why maybe their model doesn't quite match what the incubator's model does. And are there ways that we can start to learn and pull those key, those best practices into what um, makes up the, the, the corporate um, creative process? Like, is there a way to, 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 to pull that in? Um, I, I would love to see more corporations pausing and learning and listening to what is working. Um, I think a lot of, um, Craig, the stories that you've shared in your work, um, unfortunately have a similar starting place, which is they weren't listened to and they had to go out and create their own. Um, what if they were listened to first? And what if 
um, they belonged to an organization that really, um, you know, had their back and supported them and gave them what they needed in order to succeed. Um, how does that change the trajectory of that organization over time? Um, I, I think it's a loaded answer now that I think about it, but there is this balance of listening and also um, listening, learning from what's already working, but a hundred percent supporting and being there for, for creatives who need the, who need it now um, instead of waiting for them to fail to get behind them. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful point. And, and the only thing I would add to that is, I think you're right, Nari, sort of identifying those um, incubators that already exist, those ecosystems that are already kind of in the works. And then maybe one of the things that organizations, you know, corporate organizations do um, is, is find ways to support those agencies to continue their work, to sustain their work. Uh, mm -hmm. And that can potentially be right, um, you know, a ground, uh, a space to recruit from, or at least just a way of, of contributing to the further development of, of talent that sort of then expands uh, the pipeline. Well, well, this, um, oh, go ahead, Noria. Oh, no, I was going to say that's a, that, that was a great ad and, and, and definitely, yeah, stand yeah. behind that. <laughs> you know, this, I mean, that's sort of a great point to, to sort of end this conversation on. And I know we covered a lot of ground from, you know, creativity to, to social movements, um, to you know, the role that digital platforms can play. And I know there's much more to say here. I, I, you know, we'll have links to, to Professor Watkins' books um, for those of you that want to dig a bit deeper into some of the stories that we talked about. And uh, Professor Watkins, I'm just curious, what are, what are you working on now and what, what can we expect next? Yeah, so we're, we've got a, a few different projects going on uh, in the Institute. I'll just mention a, a couple really quickly. You know, like a lot of people, you know, we're, we're looking uh, toward the post-pandemic world, right? At, at some point, mm -hmm. <laughs> you think we'll get there. Uh, but, um, but really sort of thinking about what that'll look like in terms of the future of work, um, particularly young people's transition into this rapidly evolving economy and, and what that's likely to look like. So we're doing um, a series of interviews now with, with, with young adults and sort of uh, thinking about uh, with them that transition into a kind of post-COVID economy um, and then thinking a lot about just um, uh, media, uh, technology, uh, and wellness, and so um, those are issues that uh, that we're we're focusing on in terms of in terms of our work. Wow. Well, and um, in, in just in, in in closing, you know, this this was this was our, our first episode of, of Intersection, and I think that we 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 I think we lived up to the name. Um, and and we had and we even I mean even all the the, the perspective just from a regional I mean obviously it's, this was a very U.S. conversation but Professor Watkins you're you're in Austin Texas you're bringing that perspective Naria you're in New York um, are you in Manhattan or Brooklyn I'm in Brooklyn yeah okay. Brooklyn yes and and I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area I'm specifically in in Oakland so um, so I think even just sort of us all bringing our different perspectives was was really was really great. Well, thank you again, Professor Watkins. Thank you, Naria, and I'm sure Naria, I'm sure you'll be back on a, on a future on a future episode as well. And thank you, everyone, who helped make this first episode happen. And we'll be back soon with with another. Thank you for listening to the Provoke Media Intersection series, brought to you by Provoke Media and Praytel, with production support from Marketeers. <laughs>